I went with my son Josh to attend the first home game, the Cleveland Browns football team. I use the term football team lightly. <laughs> Lots of stories, but at a critical point in the game, the opposing team, the New York Jets, threw a wide open pass, uh, threw a pass to a wide open receiver. I'm talking about nobody near him. Ball came right to him, went right to his hands, hit him in the chest, and he dropped it. And the crowd, of course, Cleveland crowd, cheered and went crazy. Yes, yes, yes. And the very large man in front of me turned around and said, Thank you, baby Jesus. Thank you, baby Jesus. Thank you, baby Jesus. Yes. Yes, he had consumed a few beverages up to that point in the game. But I was... <laughs> Forget the game, okay? I was surprised. I was, I'm sure my mouth hung open for, you know, 10 seconds. Like, dude, do you realize Jesus is not a baby anymore? You realize he's not that. I wanted to stop the game right then and there and grab a microphone and have a conversation with whoever would listen. I know that alcoholic beverages do twist your brain a little bit on these matters, yes. But I wanted to invite him to church. Come to Clarence Church of Christ, Clarence, New York. You should come there sometime. We've come to Mark chapter 3 in our study of the book of Mark. And there's lots of confusion about the identity of Jesus in this chapter. You remember, if you're studying with us in chapter 1, Jesus cast a demon out of a man, and the demon, as he was exiting, said, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Well, there was no mistake in his mind about the identity of Jesus. Last week, Jordan examined Mark chapter 2, while I was playing hooky. And that's the place where Jesus is called the friend of sinners. Remember that? And he took the, the exalted title, the Son of Man. Now, that probably doesn't mean a lot to you, but if you can trace Son of Man through the Scriptures, it goes back to Daniel, and it's an exalted term. Everywhere Jesus went, he attracted gigantic crowds and they wondered, who, who is this guy? There wasn't a building in the land that could hold the crowds, so they often spilled out of buildings outside where they, they met. They all wanted to see, you know, who is this guy? What's he going to do next? We've heard so much about him. Who is this man? And now on this side of history, we know there's a world a well-known historian named Jaroslav Pelikan who put it like this. I put it on the wall for you to see too. It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It's by his name that millions curse and in his name that millions pray. I would add, and thousands of football fans praise him as baby Jesus when football passes are dropped in critical games. It is a crazy thing. Uh, 
in the time of Mark's writing this story, people were legitimately confused. They had heard so many different versions. In chapter 3, there's an explosion of miracles and there's an explosion of reactions to the miracles. Like, I'll just quickly survey the chapter before I come back to where I'm going to land today. Verse 1 through 6, Jesus heals a man with a deformed hand in public. And the reaction is surprisingly not amazement and joy, but the reaction is hard hearts. And the enemies of Jesus plot to kill him. Now we're in chapter 3. There's 13 more chapters to go in the book of Mark. And already they are plotting against him. Verse 7 through 12, he's out by the lake shore because that's where most people can gather. He heals broken people and drives out many demons. The reaction there, uh, he attracts more people, massive crowds. The demons that are cast out fall on their face, screeching out, you are the son of God. Again, in their mind, there's no doubt about his identity, but it's the humans that have the problem. Verse 13 through 19, people are following him everywhere. From those who are convinced he is the Son of God, the Messiah, he chooses 12, and their names are listed. And they were to go and continue the work that Jesus has started. In verse 20 through, to 20 through 30, where we're going to be today, uh, there are two more reactions. The family of Jesus shows up. And their reaction is, he's out of his mind. And then the enemies of Jesus show up and they say, he's possessed by Satan. You can see all these different reactions. One thing is for sure, Jesus caused these reactions mentioned often in the Gospels. And people were amazed, as we've reviewed, they're astounded, they're astonished, they're awed, they're afraid, they're angry. He, it's it just pops out as you read through. I thought about a title for this message today. The one I was going to go with first was how to tick off Jesus. You want to tick off Jesus? In case you were wondering, here's how you do it. First, uh, you put rules over the needs of people. That would be verse uh, 2. Rules over the needs of people. Rules come first, people come second. Uh, second, you demonstrate a hard heart. That's in verse 5. You see all this evidence and you say, nah, that can't be right. And then you, you tell him he's out of his mind. That's his family in verse 20. Then you accuse him of being demon-possessed, verse 22. Then you talk the talk like you're all that, but you don't walk in obedience. That's verse 35. There's a lot there. We're not going to go there today. Jesus is the center of attention Bring a problem to him and see if he can handle it. Let's see what happens. And it's like a test. There's all these human situations that come to him, and he has shown authority and power over everything. Yet, people are confused about his identity. Josh McDowell said, If Jesus were not God, then he deserved an Oscar. Man, he sure looked like him. And that leads me to the historic conclusion made by C.S. Lewis in his classic book, Mere Christianity, where he said, in his view, you have three choices about the identity of Jesus. You've heard this before, I'll bet. 
He's Lord or a lunatic or a liar. I mean, he, he told people that they were forgiven of their sins, and that only makes sense if he were God, claiming to be God, because God alone can do that. People often say about him, I, I'm quoting C.S. Lewis here, I am ready now to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but, they, but I don't accept him as God. And this was C.S. Lewis's famous paragraph that perhaps you've read, but I quote it for you now. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So he kind of paints you into a corner here. So now back to Mark chapter 3, this explosion of miracles should be a powerful recruiting tool. You should come and hang around a guy like this. This is the guy you want to be near. But people are slow to respond. It kind of, why is that? So even his family's in that boat. So I'd like to read this section of Scripture from verse 20 to 35 with you. It might sound a little bit different to you because I'm reading from the New Living Translation today. I think it tells it just a little bit different and gives a little bit more plain language to it. One time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan and the prince of demons. That's where he gets his power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan? He asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. And similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Then, verse 31 then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who's my mother? And who are my brothers? Then he looked around at the, he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and my brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Okay. 
There's two stories here. It starts with verse 20. One time, that's how it starts, one time, his family showed up and tried to take him away, saying he was out of his mind. That's the story. But inside that story, inside the house as well, the lawyers come and accuse him of being demon-possessed. It becomes a very hot conversation in that house as Jesus responds to that charge. But that interrupt, interrupted the original story of the family coming to connect with Jesus. So finally then in verse 31, the family is still there waiting to talk to him and he encounters them. Matthew, if you'd like to keep your finger in another passage to get a little bit different insight, Matthew chapter 12 tells the same story. He adds that after healing a demon-possessed man who was both deaf and blind, the crowd asked the question on everybody's mind about his identity. They asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? Yeah, people were starting to turn that way with all this evidence, all this talk, all these miracles. What I'm trying to help you see is that people were struggling with his identity. They, they were going around and around with it. Was he the Lord? Was he out of his mind? Was he a liar? Well, of all things, his family chooses B, lunatic. He's a lunatic. Maybe that's what your family thinks of you today. If so, you have something in common with Jesus. Okay, good, good for you. That's good. Once in Luke 4, Jesus went to his hometown. He read in the synagogue, this is fulfilled in your ears. And he indicted them for their unbelief. And after one sermon, they took him to a cliff outside of town and were going to throw him off the cliff and kill him. One sermon. So... Nazareth, his hometown, was not a happy place for him. He went away to begin his work. Mark chapter 3 now in verse 21, the family hears what he's doing. And they went out to take custody of him, thinking he was out of his mind. Well, let's just review his family real quick. Uh, you know from Mark chapter 6 that the brothers of Jesus are mentioned by name. Four brothers, James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. And then it says along with his sisters, plural, he had at least two sisters. John 5 explains clearly that the brothers of Jesus refused to believe in him. And here we get the idea that he is mentally ill. He's lost his senses. Well, Mary, of course, knew better because she was told by the angel. She'd been pondering all these things in her heart all this time. But how does she explain this stuff to the rest of her children? Okay, calm down, you guys. Your brother, who you think is really strange, is really God. Mom, you're also mentally ill. Your dad, your dad is not, your dad is your father, yes, but it's not, he's not his father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mom, 
you're talking nonsense. Uh, can you imagine those awkward conversations? Can you imagine the stress of growing up in the same house with a perfect child? I mean, my brothers had that problem. You know? <laughs> no. <laughs> when they hear this, they're going to get all over me. There was a man in a psych ward who was repeating himself day after day. He said, I am Napoleon. I am Napoleon. I am Napoleon. And it just kind of drove the staff nuts. One day, they gave him a new roommate. Oh. And the guy kept repeating, I am Napoleon. I am Napoleon. And the staff was watching, wondering how long this guy's going to be able to take this. I am Napoleon. I am Napoleon. Finally, about a week later, the roommate said, who told you you are Napoleon? And the guy said, God told me I am Napoleon. And the roommate said, oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> I know. This craziness. Jesus was an embarrassment to his brothers and sisters. He was a puzzle to them. Yeah, there was a lot of good things he could do. He was a hard worker. He ran the, you know, the shop. He worked his craft. He took care of the family. But on the other hand, there were all these crazy things. And so every day there was stress in Mary's house. Can you imagine everything this child did was right. Every response was perfect. He did the right thing with the right attitude every time. I mean, no parent ever experienced anything like it. And certainly no siblings ever experienced anything like it. His perfection was on display at the same time was also resented, right? They, they couldn't measure up. And now as an adult, he's gone over the edge, claiming these supernatural powers and claiming to be God and giving these teachings to these massive crowds. They decided the best thing we can do is rescuing. He's a lunatic. Mary wanted to protect him. The family felt a responsibility for him. I don't know what we're going to do with him exactly, but we, we just need to get him home. Charged with insanity. Man, that is a hard day. And while you're dealing with that one, there's a second accusation from his critics who say, He's possessed by Satan. Again, back in verse 22 there, if you're following along. And you notice the scriptures call them religious teachers, uh, scribes, lawyers. And of course, that's what, that's what lawyers do. Um, they try to discredit their, their witness, whoever that is. They do not talk about the works of Jesus, his compassion, his power, his insightful teaching. They don't talk about any of that stuff. They just start throwing mud at the wall and let's see what sticks. And so the same accusation came a couple other times. One is found in Luke chapter 11. He's possessed by Satan. 
And if you repeat the lie often enough, it becomes news, right? It becomes believable. Before Jesus then deals with his family and them wanting to rescue him, he stops to deal with these theologians and in common language and simple logic, he tears them to shreds. And I want more of this conversation, but Mark moves on. Um, they were not happy with Jesus and Jesus was not happy with them. And he gives them an earful and he gives them an intense warning and he gives them a lesson in logic. You can see it there. How can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. If Satan fights against Satan, how can he, how can he stand? Only someone stronger than Satan can take his possessions. And then this last one. It had to be so intense in the room when Jesus was talking to these guys. Because of your hard heart, you're very close to the point of no return with God. You are right on the edge of walking away from every good thing and being condemned. This is terminal. There's no a point of no return. They're guilty of eternal sin. They ignore all the evidence. They conclude he was not God, yet he was filled with Satan. And you can't be saved from that position. So be careful about how you identify this person, Jesus. Just reading his, his logic and his forceful arguments to the teachers of the law certainly doesn't sound like a lunatic talking there, does it? Does it sound like those words come from a liar? It sounds like it comes from a place of authority and knowledge. It, it must have been one of those in-your-face kind of intense conversations. It must have been one of those drop-the-mic moments, like there, I'm done. You take it from here. Powerful. We want to know more about this. I... I want to ask Mark, can you go back and rewrite this section and tell me how this ended? But Mark just does what Mark does. He just moves quickly back to the original story. The family's waiting there. Jesus has dealt with this very tough interruption. The messenger arrives. They're, they're outside. Your brothers are asking for you. Oh yeah, back to them. But Jesus just does the the most bizarre thing, your, your mother and your brothers are out there, and he says, who's my, who's my mom? Who's my brothers? Of course he knew who his family was. This is a chance for him to teach. He loves his mom. Of course he loves his mom. He made sure of her long-term care. Remember at the cross, he commended her to John to take care of her. He loved his brothers and sisters. He in fact, he loved them right into the kingdom of God. Just a quick review in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. We know Mary and the brothers of Jesus were in the upper room with the 120 followers after the resurrection. They were there. We read later on that James became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Both James and Jude, the brothers of the Lord, wrote letters that are in your Bible. 
And they're both strangely silent about being the brother of Jesus, yet they both say the same thing. We are servants of the Lord, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus loved his brothers and he loved them right into the kingdom. He loved them and they eventually came to love him too. But on this day, they think he's a lunatic. Jesus takes this opportunity to include people like you and me in his family. Oh my goodness. Let me tell you about my family, he says. And he makes it a spiritual deal, not a flesh and blood deal for the basis of being in the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual thing. Verse 34, anyone who does the will, of, or anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Later, when Jesus was teaching, a, a woman yelled out in public, interrupting him, blessed is your mother who gave you birth. Now that would have been a really good time to honor Mary. Didn't do that. That would have been a really good time to say thank you, thank you very much. No, he didn't do that. He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's you. You're blessed. And your family relationship to him is seen in obedience. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of God of my Father who is in heaven. Don't talk about it. Don't tell me how religious you are. Obey. John 14, 24. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. There it is. Your obedience shows you're in his family. It's a transformed life that's seen in submission to him. William Barclay said in his commentary, true kinship lies in common obedience. We're in the family. All of us are in the family because we're obeying Him. And that's the, that's the key significant item right there. If we stop obeying Him, we pull away from Him. But if we continue to obey Him, we just continue this beautiful relationship. And Paul echoed these same things when he wrote the letter to the Romans, he said, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Well, that's you. You're trying to keep in step with the Spirit. That is keeping you in His family. Earlier in chapter 3, Mark named the 12 disciples, which I just didn't even talk about much this morning, but they're listed there for you. Among them, is a man named Matthew, the tax collector, and another man named Simon, the zealot. These guys were polar opposites. They avoided each other at all costs. They had really nothing in common. But they were bound together because they had accepted Jesus Christ as Master and Lord. They had submitted their lives to Him. And so whatever they were before, distant, enemies, they found this family relationship by their obedience to Jesus. Their sharp diversity 
was welded together by this common obedience. And that's how Jesus defines family. You want in the family? Then you got to obey him. And what a happy thing it is to obey him because it leads to a really good life. I need to invite the worship team up as we get ready to close here. But it's just every time we gather, it's just important to review. Every person must decide about the identity of Jesus. Is he little baby Jesus who makes football players drop passes? Is he that guy? Is he a traveling faith healer that's out for fame and fortune? Is he a conniving, lying hypocrite that just enjoys tricking people? Is he out of his mind? Or is he the Holy One of God in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation? Each person gets to decide. I would encourage you today, if you still wonder about these things, to look very carefully at the evidence, reason it out. Then if we confess Jesus as Lord, may we demonstrate that knowledge with an obedient life. And that's my challenge to you today. If you have come to the place where you're convinced that He's Lord, the next step is obeying Him. The Bible says, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Obey Him in that and watch your life turn around.